in your pew Bibles, if you have them, to the page that's listed on the screen behind me. Or if you have your own Bible, turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I'm just going to read the first four verses of this magnificent Hebrew psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In 1908, Two boys sat in Northern Ireland, Belfast, waiting to be told that their mother, whom they knew was dying of cancer, was dead. The word came to them, and they both were filled with grief, as you might imagine. The older was 13, his name was Warren. The younger was 10. His name was Clive, but from a very young age, he had, been, he had insisted on being called Jack. With the death of their mother, Jack wrote many years later, with my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable disappeared from my life. Then to make matters worse, their father sent them off to boarding school. Jack hated it. Eventually, Jack's father hired for him a tutor whose job it was to get him into Oxford. By this time, Jack said that he was a convinced atheist, but his tutor, who happened to be the son of a minister, was also a convinced atheist, and he put the final nail in Jack's atheism. Jack was admitted to Oxford. He was drafted in his first, first semester. He was sent to to France to fight in World War I. He was wounded, sent back to England, finally finished his degree, and then became a professor at Oxford, all the while maintaining his atheism. But then, in God's good time, Jack Lewis became the greatest defender of Christianity in the 20th century. What this story illustrates is how many people descend into atheism through some calamity, some horrible experience that they have, sometimes at a young age. But it also illustrates how it's not the end of the story. You may know Jack Lewis as C.S. Lewis. I hope that you've had the opportunity to read his book, Mere Christianity, I hope that you've purchased his children's stories, the Chronicles of Narnia, and read them or read them to your children or read them to your grandchildren. And if you haven't, maybe you should stop at Bam Bookstore on the way home and buy them. They're outstanding. Now, this series that Pastor Matt has set up, of course, is objections to Christianity. And the greatest objection, of course, is that there is no God. Tonight, I'm going to present you with three powerful evidences of God's existence 
My guess is that most of you here tonight have a robust belief in God's existence, and I probably don't need to try to persuade you of God's existence. Nevertheless, you may have friends or children who are doubtful or maybe who claim to not believe in God's existence, and perhaps what I present to you tonight might help you as you converse with them. Now, before I go into these evidences, I need to make one remark. I've had many conversations with my children, and my youngest son, even in this past week, as I was talking with him about preparing to speak to you, he reiterated again that children, people of his generation, 20, 21, 22-year-olds, high school graduates, college graduates, for them, they simply cannot figure out how to put Christianity and science together. They think that they are enemies. And I understand that. And tonight I am going to rely on two amazing discoveries from modern science, and I'm going to use them as evidence for God's existence. Now, I, I suspect that some of you here tonight, in good faith, hold that the universe is just a few thousand years old, perhaps ten. I don't want to offend you. I particularly don't want you to throw fruit, especially not canned fruit. And so what I'm asking of you is that if you hold that view, that you would simply tonight be able to say at the end, I understand how my other Christian brothers and sisters can see that science has given us gifts that can be used for the glory of God and that, if I were to accept them, would be powerful evidences of God's existence. Now, having said that, and I hope that we, we have an understanding, the first question I need to ask of you is this. Are you morally serious about God's existence? By that I mean, are you really prepared for the reality of God's existence? Our attitude toward a variety of things interestingly dictates how open we are to the evidence. That's just how we're built. Philosopher Paul Moser has a friend who's an atheist and According to Paul Moser, his friend said, I would commit suicide before I would admit that there is a God. Well, that's not a person who we might say is really open to the evidence. Now, there's a possibility of being passively open, but there's also a possibility of being actively open. And if you're actively open to God's existence, this is what it means. It means that you are prepared to be morally transformed. And to be morally transformed may very well require moral surgery. 
I wish I could tell you that God has never had to do moral surgery on me, and that would be a big fat lie. Moral surgery is painful, it's bitter. And when God has been required to do moral surgery on me, I haven't been happy about it. But if I'm truly actively open to the reality of God, then I have to say I'm, I'm prepared for that pain and that suffering in order to get me to conform myself to be the person that God wants me to be. And so that's the first challenge I put to you tonight. Are you morally serious? about the reality of God's existence. I hope that you are. It's easy to say yes when we're sitting here and we're warm and comfortable and with our family and friends, but when we get out into the world and then we realize that we're being cut open by God to try to transform us, we become bitter and angry, and and I understand that. Now, having said that, let me turn now to this first powerful evidence of God's existence. I'm going to give you three. One is the gift of the beginning of the universe, evidence for the beginning of the universe. Second is evidence for the fine-tuning of the universe for conscious embodied life. And the third is the existence of the moral law within us. So I want you to think back roughly 3,000 years. Roughly 3,000 years ago, the Hebrew Scriptures were beginning to be written down. And you all know that magnificent first line of the Hebrew Scriptures, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now at that point, if someone had said, though they wouldn't have, because they had no concept of what science was, but if someone had said, is there any hard scientific evidence that the universe had a beginning, of course the answer would have been no. Now just hold that thought for a moment and go, and go forward about 600 years. Roughly 400 years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, there was a great Greek philosopher whose name I know you are familiar with. His name was Plato, and he wrote a dialogue called the Timaeus. And in the Timaeus, so far as I know, Plato was the very first one to write down this simple principle. The principle is whatever begins to exist as a cause for its existence. Plato thought that was a necessary truth. He thought that it, that truth was like 5 plus 2 equals 7. He thought it was true in all possible worlds. I think he was correct. Whatever begins to exist as a cause of its existence. Let's call that Plato's principle. Now, we can take that principle and we can use it to construct an argument. This isn't original with me, far, far from it. This is an old argument. It goes back to Arabic philosophers. In fact, the name of it is an Arabic name. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Now, what I've been told, truly told, actually told by more than one person, is that there aren't any arguments for God's existence that aren't either A, invalid, or B, that use some religious premise that is iffy. Neither of those is true as I'll show you here as we construct the Kalam cosmological argument. So, the first premise is this necessary truth. Whatever begins to exist as a cause for its existence. And now we move forward all the way 
to roughly a hundred years ago. And up until that point, if someone had said, is there any hard scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe, again, the answer would have been no. But almost exactly a hundred years ago, an American astronomer whose name, again, you're familiar with, his name was Hubble, Edwin Hubble, Space Telescope is named after him. Edwin Hubble made an extraordinary discovery. He discovered that our universe is expanding, literally getting larger. That means that when I began speaking just a few minutes ago, the universe, our universe, was smaller than it is right now. And when I finish speaking in about 30 minutes, it's going to be larger than it is now. That's what Edwin Hubble discovered. I can't tell you how annoying that was to many scientists. I've read what they've said. Can't be true. It leaves me cold. How can, that, how can it possibly be? Because the universe is expanding. It's expanding from somewhere, and it hasn't been expanding forever. And so what cosmologists did was run the tape backwards and then measure it. How long is that tape? Run it backwards. How long is it? Well, if you Google this question, I'm going to tell you the answer you're going to find. Google the question, how old is the universe? And you're going to get this number. 13.8242 billion years. The age of the universe has been measured down to the 10,000th of a billion years. Now, I simply say thank you. What an amazing gift from modern science. And so now we have the modern scientific hard evidence for the second premise of the Kalam cosmological argument, the universe had a beginning. Not relying on religion, not relying on scripture, not relying on anything but modern science. And now you put those two premises together, and of course you get the conclusion. It's an easy conclusion to draw, right? The universe had a cause for its existence. Now that doesn't get us to the personal cause of the Bible. Of course not. It doesn't get us that far. But, but I, I promise you, that if you will learn this argument and simply present it to your friends who have some doubts, it's either going to be very annoying to them or it's going to be a profound influence on them. They may, like Paul Moser's friend said, I'll commit suicide before I'll admit that God exists. They might say that. That would be sad. But I think you'll agree that this is a very simple argument. And so what I would urge you to do is just learn this argument. Learn the age of the universe. I've had occasion to ask many people, how old is the universe? Let me tell you something. They don't know. Well, now you do. And when you tell them what the age of the universe is, it's going to be obvious to them. The universe had a cause for its existence. Now, the second gift from science 
in the last hundred years is this. Once it was established that the universe had a beginning, scientists began to investigate that beginning. And what they found was absolutely astounding. They found that if the simple laws that dictated the conformation of everything around us, if you modify those by the slightest, tiniest bit, you don't get us. On the screen behind me, you're going to see, you see a, a little box, okay? Think of that box as a universe-creating machine, all right? So Black Friday, this past year, you went to Target. You, they had the universe-creating machines on sale. You bought one. You took it home. You took it down into your basement. You said, I'll have some fun. Let's see what it's like to create some universes. Well, the dials on there are going to come preset, okay? And those four dials are the four forces that dictate the confirmation of everything. Gravity, electromagnetism, the strong force which holds together the nucleus of every atom, and the weak force that dictates the rate of radioactive decay. So you say, okay, it's, it comes preset. If I punch the red button, it's just going to create a universe like this. That's no fun. Why don't I try turning down gravity just one little tiny, tiny click? So you go, click, punch the red button. You know what you get? You get soup. Gravity isn't strong enough to form stars and planets. All you need to do is turn it down the slightest bit. That's what you get. Okay, that didn't work so well. Let's see what happens if we turn it up one click. All right, let's make gravity just the tiniest bit more powerful. Click. Punch the red button. You get a rubber band. The universe explodes into existence and immediately collapses on itself. Gravity is too strong. You want this? You want this? It's got to be set exactly where it is. And now take that third button the strong force, and that second button, electromagnetism. There's a ratio between them. That ratio is a number I can't really even comprehend, okay? But if you, if you want to write it down, it's this. One with a line under it, right? We're writing a fraction. One with a line under it, and then another one and 17 zeros, That's the ratio. You change that ratio, the slightest, tiniest bit, no stars. No stars, no us. Truly. Of course, we need one star, right, for our planet. But the fact of the matter is, tonight, you've got hands, and those hands are probably touching your body somewhere, Every atom in your body and mine started off in a star. In order to get conscious embodied life, you have to have carbon. Carbon requires intense heat to create, and so it's baked in the heart of stars. Now, I simply can't imagine that God 
would create billions of carbon factories and never use them. I can't, it, that doesn't make sense to me. So, what modern science tells us seems to make perfectly good sense to me. Except I simply add in the fact that it's God. So roughly five billion years ago, God says, that star, that star, that star, and that star, you've been baking all that carbon, and now you're going to explode, and all that carbon you've been baking is going to explode into space, and the law of gravity that I have front-loaded into my universe is going to take that carbon, and it's all going to coalesce into a planet, and on that planet, conscious embodied life, when I say so, is going to emerge. And I'm going to put a big giant Jupiter planet out there a little ways, well, a lot of ways from it, and it's going to guard that planet so all the junk in the universe will go to that planet instead of hitting Earth. And so it was. Every atom, every piece of carbon, nothing, no carbon is produced here, friends, nothing. Now, how do you explain that? Well, Here's what the Astronomer Royal of Great Britain, his name is Michael Reese. I don't think Michael Reese is even a theist. I don't, I, I don't, he's not a Christian. But here's, what he, here's how he described what I have just said to you. He says, the outcome, this, depended crucially on a recipe encoded in the Big Bang, and this recipe seems to have been rather special, a degree of fine-tuning in the expansion speed, the material contact content of the universe and the strength of the basic forces seems to have been a prerequisite for the emergence of a hospitable cosmic habitat in which we live. Now suppose that you're a convict, a political convict, and you've been sentenced to death, and you're set up in front of a firing squad. This isn't my picture, this is a picture that's from John Leslie, a philosopher, to try to explain this, right, to get us to have a mental picture of it. He says, suppose that you're standing in front of that firing squad, ten, ten men with rifles loaded, and they point their rifles at you, and at the uh, appointed time they pull the trigger, and they all miss. Let me tell you what you're not going to say. Well, that went well. No, you're going to say, that was a put-up job. Somebody, somebody did that. They didn't just all miss, right? It just didn't happen. And so Reese says, given that, we only have three choices. There's only three possibilities. One of them is luck or happenstance. Nobody believes that. Not even the most secular cosmologists believe that our universe, that recipe that was baked into our universe, none, nobody believes it was just luck. So people like Reese take a flying leap and they say, well, maybe we're just one universe of billions. And it just happens that we live in the universe that had that special recipe baked in there and that's how we got here. Suppose that that's true. You still have to explain the origin of the multiverse, right? 
You don't get, you don't get a free multiverse. Just go back to the Kalam cosmological argument. It doesn't seem very persuasive to me. Well, the only other choice, even according to Martin Rees, is providence. God did it. I accept these two powerful evidences of God's existence, gifts from modern science. And I'd ask you tonight and tomorrow just to spend a little time asking yourself just how awesome could this be that, that everything here comes from a star and that this special recipe didn't just happen to be the case, but God providentially front-loaded his universe 13.8 billion years ago so that you and I show up today and we're sitting here. Just how awesome is that? And now just one more piece of evidence. When you and I look inside ourselves at what we might call our deep conscience, we see a law of right and wrong and a law of good and bad written there. I grew up in Japan. My folks were missionaries. I spent most of my adolescence there. I graduated from high school there. I want to tell you that in Japan, they know perfectly well that they have a duty not to murder, not to steal, not to lie, not to commit adultery. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard college students say, well, everybody has their own morality. It's just false. This is absolutely Absolutely, demonstrably false. No, everybody doesn't have their own morality. Go to China, same thing. They all know that you have a duty not to murder, not to steal, not to lie, not to commit adultery. Go to Indonesia, go to India, go to South America. Everybody knows it. I'm not saying everybody obeys it. I'm not saying everybody conforms their life to it. I'm saying everybody knows it. How in the world do we explain this widespread agreement with respect to the basic duties that we have to one another? Well, again, it seems that there are only three possibilities. Those who are called sociobiologists actually say, I've actually read this, they say our genes are fooling us, our genes are duping us into thinking there really is something called objective right and wrong. But it's, we're duped, we're, we're fooled into it. There's a lot that could be said about that. I'm just going to respond in the, in the words of probably the greatest Christian philosopher of the last 70 years, Alvin Plantinga. He said, that's not even close enough to be a miss. So maybe it's about survival, right? Maybe we have these, this sense of duty because it helps us survive. I've got three grown children. I don't think they're here tonight. They're going to probably be here tomorrow, okay? And suppose you heard me say to them, uh, Matt and Rach and Ben, you know all that money that I've spent raising you feeding you, clothing you, sheltering you, educating you, right? What do I get out of it? I'd be a lot better off financially if I hadn't done any of that. 
I mean, I'm going to kick the bucket before you guys are, 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 have to help me, right? That could happen. And, and, and even if, if I live long enough that I need your help, I'm probably not going to need the help of all three of you. So, I mean, what do I get out of this anyway, right? If you heard me say that, you would not say, man, that Jensen, he's, he's just stupid, or he's just weak, or he's unlucky. You wouldn't say that. You'd say, that's a bad guy. That's a bad man. He whines and complains about the duties that he has to his children, right? And he, and he wants to know what he's going to get out of it. Not going to happen, right? So it can't be about survival. The best thing, right, if I, if I were a truly evil person, the best thing that could happen is all of you keep your duties and I get to skate, right? Again, you'd say, that's a bad man. What is it? that can account for this moral law within us. The Roman philosopher Cicero, not a Christian, said, God wrote it on our hearts. That's what he said. Of course, the Apostle Paul said exactly the same thing. God wrote it on our hearts. I think he's right. I think that's the only rational explanation for this widespread agreement about the duties that we have to one another. And now just take a moment. Let's just try to put it together. We've got this amazing scientific hard evidence that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. It had a beginning. Can't have a beginning without a cause. We have this amazing evidence that this special, very special recipe was built into the universe at the very beginning so that we would show up here 13 billion years later. We've got these amazing stars without which we would not be here, these carbon factories that baked all the carbon that's in our bodies. We've got this moral law that's written on our hearts. But friends, that's not the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing is that the creator and judge of the universe says he loves us. That he loves us infinitely. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. For I'm persuaded... powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Pray with me. Almighty creator, judge of the universe, in whose providence we live and move and have our being. Would you confirm these truths to our minds and hearts tonight? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.